we're learning five dynamics of leadership. The first one was the art of compromise. The second one was the drive for wholeness. The third was the inspiration that comes from compassion. And the fourth and the fifth will do today. The fourth one is the drive for integration. What does it mean to drive for integration? The truth is in every generation that means something different. In our generation though, it means that a Jewish leader needs to be able to take advantage of all of the technological advances that there are but to integrate them and unite them with a spiritual vision which were some of the first dynamics that we learned in other words in our day and age the the essence is to is to unite physical and spiritual and as an interesting example I'm going to use Chabad because Chabad the the rabbis and the shlichim they don't watch TV they don't go to movies yet they are very very sophisticated about using media and video in a Torah context I remember I still remember this maybe it was 1991 I don't remember exactly but it was Hanukkah and watching on TV the first world hookup of Hanukkah live with Chabad it, it's become an annual event but we saw the first one where they did by satellite they took five communities if I'm not mistaken it was Paris at the Eiffel Tower it was Moscow at the outside of the Kremlin it was Sydney Hong Kong and maybe San Francisco and New York but to do something live everyone's at a different time so they were at the Eiffel Tower like 3 in the morning we're talking about thousands of people Moscow it was let's say 8 at night someplace else it was 8 in the morning and they had live transmission of all of them going back and forth between them and why I thought this was so impressive is uh, Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan in the book The Real Messiah he explains the problem with young Jews who don't know what to answer to missionaries and virtually everyone is approached when I was in America people used to come to my door all the time because I wear a kippah well, I'm approached all over the place on planes and standing in line at a grocery store and people come up and want to witness want to witness to me and most young Jews have no idea what to answer especially when they're quoting scripture left and right by heart and so he wrote a book it, it, it was followed by many many other books 
but in the end he writes an incredible scenario he said like this he said the belief in the coming of, of the Mashiach is one of the foundations of Jewish belief he said that a lot of people have a hard time imagining that in the context of today's world so he wrote it's very it's the last chapter in the real Messiah like an eight page scenario of how it could actually happen in our day and age and part of it was part of it was that the world becoming a global village is actually a great part of the messianic vision and Chabad and others have really picked up on this very very strongly that the idea that because of the revolution in science and communication and transportation and and food development and medicine that many of the prophecies that were said over 2,000 years ago could only start to happen in our, our world now and he brings all these different examples how the global village is in a sense the, the stepping stone to the messianic era and so therefore the fourth dynamic of leadership in our day is to be able to make this integration between spirituality and physicality and also how to how to teach Torah in a way that people will understand how relevant it is according to the most cutting edge of whatever discipline you want to talk about whether it's economics or physics or biology or chemistry or law or the social sciences or the arts or whatever it is that Torah has what to say to the contemporary world and this is one of the things that, that the Mashiach accomplished uh, and a beautiful insight to this is a Rashi on the verse where it says that after the burning bush after God revealed to Moshe that he was appointed to be the leader so Moshe leaves and it says he took his wife and his children and he put them on a donkey and he sent them back to his father-in-law on that verse Rashi says I'm paraphrasing it this is no ordinary donkey now you would read that verse and say like this why does the Torah have to tell us with all the verses in the Torah there's not that many what is so important that we know that Moses put his wife and his children on the donkey so Rashi says this is no ordinary donkey this is the donkey that Avram saddled when he took Yitzchak to what's called Akeda Yitzchak the binding of Isaac and listen he says and this is the same donkey that Mashiach will come riding on so you read this Rashi and like okay what is he telling us what is he telling us so I learned from my teacher Rob Ginsburg he explained it like this he said what is the word for donkey in Hebrew Chamor what other word shares that same root Chomer which means material reality 
uh, raw material. In Hebrew, raw materials is called chomer gelem. Raw materials. So he said the donkey represents material reality and the mission of the Jewish people is to channel material reality and unify it with spirituality. So how is this shown? It says that Avram saddled the donkey. He didn't put anyone on the donkey and he didn't get on the donkey himself. But he began the process. Avram Avinu began the process of taking the physical world and elevating it to a higher spiritual level. Moshe puts his wife and his children on. So that represents a, a further development. But what does it say of Mashiach? He'll come riding himself on the donkey. And what that means is the Mashiach will teach the world how to take our physical world and to turn it into a spiritual world. That physicality has to be harnessed. It has to be saddled. But to our advantage. And therefore, that's why the Zohar said, this is is what we began this whole series with. Remember the prediction from the Zohar. That in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, the floodgates of wisdom will pour down from above and the wellsprings of wisdom will burst out from below. And we learned that the water from below represents secular knowledge and the wellsprings from above represents spiritual wisdom. And they will both flood the world. And, and, and the Zohar was saying that that is imp- that and it ends by saying this will happen in preparation for the seventh millennium. So the Zohar was saying that there must be this unity between physical and spiritual in order to pave the way for Mashiach. So just to recap it, a, a Jewish leader has to take advantage of everything in the physical world in order to accomplish spiritual purposes. And now the last one. The last one is the most enigmatic one. It's called a sense of folly or a sense of humor. And you would think of all of the different qualities that we could think of, of a leader, yeah, I mean, a, a, a good sense of humor is important, but one of the top five but the meaning is the way I explained it is two things joy that we should not underestimate the power of joy and the ability to think outside of the box so what does that mean so there is a verse in Mishle that says like this more precious than wisdom and honor is a little folly. So not everyone translates it precious. How about this? More weighty than wisdom or honor 
is a little folly. So the simple understanding is that King Solomon was saying a little bit of folly can overrule a lifetime of wisdom and honor. Meaning, and, and we've all seen this in various people or politicians, that make a mistake, make a rash statement, do something without thinking, and everything they built crumbles because of it. That just a, a little folly. But interestingly enough, the Midrash explains it just the opposite, and it actually says the verse in a good light. What is a good light? That sometimes, even more precious than wisdom and honor, is you need a little folly. What does that mean? That sometimes folly is greater than wisdom. So it brings a number of examples. One of them is the famous story of Elijah the prophet on Har Carmel. At the time of, of Eliel and Navi, all the people were worshipping idols. Eliel and Navi did not know what to do with the people. They were just worshipping idols. And most of the, the prophets had been killed. And he was at his wit's end. So he did something totally outrageous. He called for a contest of the gods. All of the priests of Baal, that was the name of this idol worship, Baal, and he said, I challenge you to a contest. You invite your gods, and I'll invite our god. We'll make an altar, we'll put a sacrifice on the altar. Whoever can bring fire down on the altar, that will prove who God is. Now, this is an outrageous thing for Eliyahu to do. First of all, you're not allowed to bring a sacrifice outside of the temple. You're not allowed to test God in this way. And it was just, no one had heard of such a thing, but it happened. 450 priests of Baal came, and all the, all the people came, and it was just like a contest of the gods. And he gave the priests of Baal first shot, and all day long they're, they're doing prayers and incantations and this and that, and nothing's happening. And Eliyahu was like taunting them. Maybe your gods are sleeping. Maybe you haven't yelled loud enough. Maybe they can't hear you. And then, right before Mincha, the sun's about to go down, Eliyahu says, well, what about my turn? It's time for my turn. So he comes and he pours water over the whole altar and he says like a, a 20 second prayer and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice and the people are impressed and they said something very important this is the closing of of Ne'il of Yom Kippur they said Hashem Hu Ha'elokim God is God that's how we end Ne'ila. Eliel could not figure out, with all of his wisdom, how, how to get the people not to worship idols. And so he, he like, what I keep on calling, he thought outside of the box. He did something really outrageous. 
really outrageous, but you know what? It worked. And I said after that, it, he, like, it, things turned around. Things turned around. So that's the example that the Midrash brings. So there are many, many other examples, <coughs> actually, that the Midrash brings. One of David Melech, when he feigned insanity. It's also an incredible story. And one David says to God, God, I understand. I think I understand everything about your creation, except two things. I don't understand why you made spiders and crazy people. To what benefit in the creation are crazy people and spiders? So God says, by your life, you you will need both of these. So what's the story? He's running away from. Shaul and Melech, King Saul, and in Engedi, and you remember those caves in, in the mountains of Engedi. He was hiding in one of these caves, and the soldiers of King Shaul were trying. They knew he was there. They were trying to find him. So he went in this cave, <coughs> and he actually fell asleep. He was exhausted, and a spider came and made a web across the entrance of the cave. So when the soldiers got there, David hears them, and he's like, now he's trapped. And they get to the cave, and they see a spider web, and they say, well, he can't be in here because there couldn't be a whole spider web. And they moved on. So this, this is how David understood that even for spiders is a purpose. What about crazy people? So, again, he's running away from Shaul, and he runs what we call Azza now to Achish the king of Gat and he's like he's trying to be you know like hiding in the city someone recognizes isn't that David? can't be no that's David so they go tell the king he says I'm positive David is, is here so he said, okay, well, let's get him. So David understands, something, like, he's like, his back is against the wall. So it says he started to feign insanity. And he started, like, you know, like scratching a blackboard. He started scratching the walls. And he started, like, spitting, like, he couldn't control himself. And he started writing crazy things on the wall. So the king comes and says, why did you tell me you had David? This is a crazy person. Now it turns out that the king of God's wife and daughter had gone insane. And he said to them, I don't have enough insane people in my own house. You bring me another one? Throw him out of here. So they throw him out of the city and David is saved. And you should know that every Shabbos morning, one of the psalms that we say is the psalm that he made up after he got out. And it begins a, a psalm to David when he feigned insanity and he escaped from Achish. So a little folly sometimes is greater than all the wisdom in the world. That's how the Midrash explains it. So what it means for a leader, the ability to assess a situation 
and not panic and not freak out and not get depressed if things aren't working out learning to be in the moment assess how you can do the best according to the circumstances a lot of times means thinking outside the box and so this is actually a, a tremendous quality to have and the last thing and then we'll, we'll play some music actually this feeds into it is joy is there's a famous story of one of the sages used to go to weddings if you've ever been at a, at a really labadic Jewish wedding you'll understand he used to uh, juggle uh, bows of hadas he used to take hadas put them in a bundle and juggle them and he was one of the greatest sages so one of his colleagues reprimanded him and, and said this it's not honorable for a sage to be acting like this but he continued to do this back then and even actually until our day there is, there's a tradition that when the, the greatest sage of the generation passes away there is a, a cloud of fire that accompanies his um, casket on the way to the funeral and for those in the generation who are on the level they can see, they can see it so when this sage who, who juggled passed away his colleague saw the pillar of fire by his casket and he, real, he realized that that what he was doing wasn't just let's have a good time but that the mitzvah of bringing joy to a chatan and kala is a very very important thing so this is a story that the Gemara brings to tell us how important it is to what we call misamech chatan and kala and that's why you'll see at, at, at a wedding you know people who have <laughs> ties and hats and you know long black coats you know, doing all kinds of outrageous things because to to bring joy to the Khatanakala, this is greater than whatever you know, they could walk up to them and give them a like a pearl of wisdom. But no, at this moment a little folly is the greatest thing in the world. And the Rambam writes about Simcha Beta Shueva. Simcha Beta Shueva is it occurred every night during Sukkot in the temple it was literally all night parties every night in the temple and the Mishnah says anyone who has not seen the joy of these um, celebrations has never seen joy meaning to say that these celebrations were be almost beyond their concept as to how joyous they were and it says that the sages themselves would do acrobatics and juggle and stand on their head and they would play music all night and this was like the greatest joy in the world so the Rambam says anyone who thinks that there isn't a time for this kind of joy is not only a fool but he calls them even worse things.
he says there's, there's a place for this kind of joy and of course Purim is one of those times and therefore you'll see again very um, dignified stately people um, doing all kinds of things on Purim but all in a in a good ruach this is the last dynamic but I just want to bless all of you all of us that we rise to the occasion of the challenges of the Jewish people in our our generation and I'll end by saying if you take the letters of Mashiach and you switch them around they spell Yismach he will be joyous and so we're told that the secret weapon of Mashiach we're told is prayer and joy